0: Welcome to Book Me, conversations with writers sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. Today, Costas we will be speaking with Sarah Soller.
1: Ten places to visit before you die. The 50 most famous guitar riffs. 100 Things to Do with Week-Old Eggplant. Ever since internet content providers discovered that headlines which included a list were well-nigh irresistible as clickbait, there's been a reaction against them by readers who saw through the ploy. Print has known about the seductive power of lists since at least 1977, when the enterprising family trio of David Wallachinsky, his sister Amy Wallace, and their father Irving Wallace brought out their first book of lists, which, through several updated editions, became a publishing goldmine. Which leads to my confession. Perhaps because of those manipulative listicles on the internet, and the fact that a lot of those copies of the book of lists ended up as reading material beside toilets, the section of bookstores which features books of lists was never my destination. But Sarah Soller has made me a convert. Her books, 100 Things You Don't Know About Nova Scotia and 100 Things You Don't Know About Atlantic Canada for kids, are rich in material and they're entertaining. You might even find yourself returning to them as a source to settle arguments about what's fact and what's folklore in this region. Sarah is also the author of Be Prepared, the Frankie MacDonald Guide to Life, the Weather, and Everything, which took home the 2018 Moonbeam Children's Book Award. We'll be discussing that book later in today's podcast. Sarah, welcome to Book Me.
0: Thanks so much for having me. Consider
1: yourself booked. <laughs> Writers don't begin their careers by saying, uh, I want to write books of lists. Uh, when did you first experience the power of lists?
0: Well, it actually started with a, a traditional listicle online <laughs> and in print also. Um, so Trevor Adams at Halifax Magazine had asked me to write 50 Things You Don't Know About Halifax. Um, it was published in Halifax Magazine, and it really took off in a way that we didn't expect.
1: What was the reaction?
0: I would call it Nova Scotia viral. (laughs) We'll call it Nova Scotia (laughs) viral. A small epidemic. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, So, yeah, it was shared widely. There were Reddit threads where people were, you know, sharing things that they thought other people didn't know about Halifax. And uh, I had a big burst of media coverage as well, like lots of radio stations wanting to talk to me about it. And so when I ran into Terry Lee, she happens to live Nearby Charlie
1: Bulger, yeah. Bulger of Nimbus. Charlie
0: Bulger of Nimbus, yep. Yeah. We live kind of in the same area, um, so we share the same coffee shop. And I ran into her and proposed to her the idea of a book, turning this into a book where there was obviously so much buzz.
1: And her reaction?
0: Uh, she said, That sounds right up our alley, so you should write up a pitch for our editor.
1: But I'm curious about that that reaction. You know, it's always gratifying when people respond positively to mm-hmm. things you've written. But what did you find interesting in the responses themselves?
0: I think it was the fact that I was so used to listicles kind of being written off, right? So that definite and extreme level of interest really surprised me, the fact that it existed at all. But then it also made me think about the fact that Atlantic Canada often doesn't get its own coverage. Um, so we don't have, I mean, Nimbus does a great job of this. But overall, in Canada, so much of the focus is on central Canada. So I think as Maritimers, we get pretty excited when there's something that we can own ourselves.
1: Yeah, I've seen this, yeah. uh, you know, when you get a national overview of, you know, the, the 50 best restaurants in Canada, mm-hmm. it, it's pretty arbitrary. And we're always at the tail end.
0: And there's always, you know, one or two out of out of the 50. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, it's That's like because, you know,
1: the the Central Canadian uh, publishers uh, don't want to spend the money to send people out here and actually do the research.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Now, some of the things people think they know are often enhanced through uh, folklore. Uh, Give us a few examples of the kind of research you had to do to give the the definitive take on some stories in, in Nova Scotia.
0: That was the hardest part, pinning down the actual facts in a lot of these things. So, um, what I would do, I always tried to make sure I had two sources. Um sometimes that was difficult to figure out. So my research process went a lot like this. I would actually pull a few different books off a shelf at a library, for example, um and go through those books until I found something, usually just a little tidbit of information that I found really interesting. It was almost always buried in a bigger chapter but something entirely different, but there'd be always be a little fact that I'd say, "Oh, I didn't I didn't know about that." So I would pull that out and um, and start searching around for more information around that little tidbit that I found particularly fascinating. Um, and so that might end up, that might take me to the archives website where I'd find more in a historical newspaper or maybe just like an old CBC article that I'd find online. And so I'd gather up um, like a snowball. I start with a little bit and I roll it up until I have enough context to build an actual thing.
1: Let's yeah. begin in Nova Scotia before the European settlers arrive. What what mm-hmm. do people not know that they should know?
0: There's so much um because Indigenous people documented their stories via oral storytelling, Um, there's a lot not written. And so this item starts out, A Hundred Things You Don't Know About Nova Scotia, and it starts with, the Mi'kmaq in Nova Scotia crafted eastern North America's first written signposts about 13,000 years ago. So basically, um, over 13,000 years ago, a band of hunter-gatherers at the foot of Kabiquid Mountains, they settled all over Nova Scotia, but primarily in Debert, Blomidon, Kejimkujik and Mersey River. And today, the Mi'kmaq hieroglyphs that were written all those centuries ago are considered to be the first written signs in eastern North America.
1: People, I think, may have heard, I never assume, but I think they may have heard of the VE Day riots uh, Mm -hmm. that broke out in Halifax when victory in Europe was declared in the Second World War. But but Halifax, as you point out, uh, had quite a riotous history before that.
0: It's true. So on May 25th, 1918, a drunken crew member of HMCS Niobe wandered into a popular Barrington Street shop called the 5 and 10 cent store. Uh, so it was a Saturday night. The store was packed. And when the sailor tried to steal an item from the store, the store owner called the police. So two police officers arrived and simply removed the sailor from the store. But when he was sent outside, he ambled down Barrington Street using this is a quote, the filthiest kind of language. <laughs> And according to a report later a, written by from the a Chief of drunken Twilies. sailor's
1: mouth, I can't imagine.
0: <laughs> I know. <laughs> so his bad behavior got him arrested. And uh, as they were trying to bring him into the station, some soldiers tried to quote, rescue him. Um, and those soldiers were also arrested. So there was a massive protest outside of City Hall and uh, in response to these people being arrested. And the police refused to release them. The crowd rioted. They broke windows, attempted to light City Hall on fire, injured firemen and policemen, drove a police motorcycle um, and a patrol car into the Halifax Harbour. Wow! Yeah, <laughs> and this is this is my favorite part. So I found a news article. This is why I love digging up more <laughs> news articles. May 27th, 1918, Halifax Herald article said a man was heard shouting, let's dump the blooming thing in the harbor <laughs> and see and other a couple other men drove the patrol car down George Street towards the Market Wharf.
1: And, and I'm sure blooming is exactly the word yeah. he used. But
0: yeah. <laughs> They might have added that for the paper. <laughs>
1: but there was another riot, which is a rather shameful episode in Halifax's history that you document.
0: Yeah. So the next riot happened in 1919 and that one was a race riot, unfortunately. The Chinese people had had a number of challenging experiences in Canada leading up to that point. Um, there was the Chinese head tax, which was a fee charged every Chinese immigrant who came to Canada. You know, it was very expensive. It was uh, $50 when it was introduced in 1885. By 1903, it had risen to $500, which was almost two years' salary for the average Chinese immigrant. In 1923, there was the introduction of the Chinese Immigration Act, um, which meant that Chinese immigration became extremely limited. Only 50 Chinese people immigrated to Canada during the 24 years that act was in effect, and it also kept people from bringing their families with them. In the early 1900s, a rash of race riots actually occurred across the country, and on the evening of February 18, 1919, one erupted in Halifax. For over two hours, several hundred rioters attacked and looted six popular Chinese restaurants, and those were on Goddagen, Brunswick, and Barrington Street. The rioters caused thousands of dollars' worth of damage to the Crown Cafe, the Busy Bee, Nova Scotia Cafe, Alley's Cafe, Victory Cafe, and the Frisco Cafe. The Halifax Herald article that was printed the next day says that the riot actually raged out of control again the next night and that there was, quote, no rhyme or reason for the night's display of brute
1: force. So history provides us some cautionary tales about people who would like to inflame anti-immigrant feelings. Absolutely, population.
0: we do. I think, especially at this point in history, we need to look back at these things and uh, and learn from them, and and realize that we don't need to take a step back.
1: Let's move along to the book you wrote, and this time you expanded to uh, things you don't know about Atlantic Canada, but for kids. Mm-hmm. What was the age group you were aiming for?
0: We were aiming for about eight to twelve. Writing for kids is a little bit different than writing for adults, of course. Um, you have to think about vocabulary and those types of things. But more than anything, with this particular book, I spent a lot of time thinking about what kids would be interested in as opposed to adults, which is which is very different. One of the first things I actually came across and put in the book was the um, Ganong Candy Factory in, in New Brunswick. And uh, that seemed like an obvious fit. They were the first company to make lollipops on a stick. Um, They were also the first company to start selling uh, chocolates in a heart-shaped box. So those types of things And I believe the first
1: candy bar.
0: I think that's true, actually. I feel like it was the... Maybe the first one was with almonds in it. It was something very specific like that. Yeah. um, So Ganong was a good fit. There was also um, Funk Island, just off of Newfoundland. And um, I thought they would love that because that... Is basically an island covered in bird poop and, and got its name from that. And, you know, kids love that sort of thing. So,
1: it has the best name in the world. has the
0: best name in the world. Yeah.
1: I'm surprised they don't have music festivals of funk music there every summer. <laughs> Now, Sarah, aside from being the author of uh, 100 Things You Don't Know About Nova Scotia and the 100 Things You Don't Know About Atlantic Canada for Kids, you're also the author of Be Prepared, the Frankie McDonald Guide to Life, the Weather, and Everything, mm-hmm. uh, which won the 2018 Moonbeam Children's Book Award. How did you first become aware of Frankie McDonald?
0: Uh, I think it was probably four or five years ago that I first um, discovered Frankie, and it was probably one of his news clips, because um, often he does YouTube videos, of course, and they get picked up by local news stations and they play little clips. Um, and I'm pretty sure it was one of those when I first discovered Frankie.
1: One of his yeah. weather forecasts?
0: One of his weather forecasts, but one that had actually been picked up by a news station and and played on the news.
1: I will admit that when I first heard about the book, I was concerned about exploitation mm-hmm. of a, a vulnerable young guy. But, but the book is anything but that. Explain why it was such a sensitive area for people who don't even know who Frankie McDonald is.
0: Yeah, of course. So Frankie McDonald is um, a YouTuber. Uh, He lives in Sydney, Nova Scotia, and he bases his YouTube channel around his weather reports. He also does what he calls comedy videos, uh, where he does impressions of people doing funny things. And uh, sometimes he does little fun interviews. And he's built up a huge audience around this YouTube channel. Frankie also is on the autism spectrum, so I feel like there was a lot of sensitivity around making sure, of course, that this isn't a situation where somebody is writing a disabled person's story and then profiting it from it. There's also, of course, the fact that people in Cape Breton really cherish Frankie, and so they want to make sure that he's, he's taken well care of.
1: It's really a hybrid book. I mean, it's about Frankie but it's also about the weather for young readers. It's a great introduction to uh, meteorology. what What did Frankie tell you about how he got interested in the technical side of of weather and forecasting?
0: That's something that he's grown up with, I think. Um he really got interested in computers and technology when he was in elementary school, and he had the opportunity to use equipment in um in his class. At one point in my research, I was using a journal that was provided to me by one of his teachers, Mrs. Sims. And in that journal, she had talked about when they were working on, they were learning to cook and they were using a special mixer and it had a lot of buttons and the kids were trying to figure it out. And Frankie almost intuitively knew which buttons to push to make make it work. Um, so he's he's shown an aptitude for technology from you know very early days, and you know as YouTube started, he was one of the first people on board trying to figure it out. Um, his first YouTube channel he ended up shutting down because he there were a lot of trolls so.
1: saying mean things to him.
0: Yeah, exactly. How did
1: how did he deal with that?
0: Um, the, well, the first time I think it was a little overwhelming for him um, because he did end up shutting down his YouTube channel.
1: But it must have hurt.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've talked to him a lot about that. And he doesn't focus on the hurt. He said, yes, it makes me sad. But then he almost automatically, as soon as he said, yes, it makes me sad. He says, but those people, they don't know their own selves. That's almost a quote that he, that he mm-hmm. gave me. He said, they don't know their own selves. They're just frustrated with their own lives. And uh, so he has a very grounded outlook on it. And he also knows very solidly that it's not him that they're reacting to necessarily. They're just taking something out on him.
1: Just finally, could you read an excerpt from the book so we could get to know Frankie even better?
0: This is a section on Frankie's interest in maps. I wanted to share it because I think it's a great example of the crux of this book, which is the fact that when you give people a chance to really explore their interests and you get out of their way, they can do really interesting things. Frankie's map collection is enormous. His dad bought him maps. His grandparents brought him maps. Even Mrs. Sims, his teacher's aide in elementary school, bought him maps for Christmas after he started talking about geography with her at recess. Sometimes he quizzed Mrs. Sims, asking her questions like, Mrs. Sims, if you were stranded on Benson Drive, where would you have to go? (laughs) Then Mrs. Sims would have to use her imagination and her knowledge of Sydney to figure out where she would go. Frankie played map games with his dad, too. Sometimes they'd use the maps to go monster hunting in the car. Frankie would be in the house playing with blocks or looking at a book and his dad would run into the room with news. Frankie, I just heard a report that there's a monster in Portocone. And Frankie would be up and out the door, road map in hand. Then they'd go for a drive together and Frankie would use his map to give his dad directions to wherever Frankie thought the imaginary monster was. When Frankie got older, he started ordering his own maps at the bookstore. Today, his collection includes maps of all the cities in Canada, lots of major U.S. cities, and some European countries. Of course, now Frankie also spends time on Google Maps. He looks at places all over the world, zooming in on highways, checking out the traffic, seeing if there's snow on the side of the road. He just wants to know what it all looks like, and he's learned a lot. Frankie's dad, Frank, says... The things Frankie knows about the world is beyond what most people can comprehend. He can tell you almost anything about the world.
1: I, I was also impressed in the book about the the quiet, quite formative role his dad plays by encouraging him, not, not only with things like that, the examples you just gave us, but, you know, about going out and getting a job that will put him in touch with people in the community.
0: Yeah, Frankie's dad um, has been a huge support to Frankie, and I would say, having talked extensively to Frank I would say that Frankie has been his main priority throughout his life he's always looked out for Frankie he's always Frankie's always been top of mind to him you know as with most of our children but with Frank um, it's a really touching devotion that he has to his son yeah
1: well Sarah it's been a real pleasure thank you for uh, joining me on book me
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Sarah Soller is the author of Be Prepared, the Frankie MacDonald Guide to Life, the Weather, and Everything, which recently took home the Moonbeam Children's Book Award. She's also the author of 100 Things You Don't Know About Atlantic Canada, for kids, and 100 Things You Don't Know About Nova Scotia. She reviews books for Quill & Quire and works as a publicist for Conundrum Press. She lives in Halifax with her partner, two children, one dog, one cat, and one bearded dragon. Book Me is produced by Robin Grant and Lynn Fox makes it all sound fabulous. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Now, let's go read.